A lot of different sayings are attributed to um, Mark Twain. So I don't know whether it really was from him or not, but I remember hearing a saying that Mark Twain uh, was attributed to. He said, you know, I was so frustrated with my father at the age of 16 at his stupidity and his ignorance and recalcitrance that I had to leave home. When I returned at 21, I was amazed at how much he had learned in five short years. <laughs> it's one of those great old sayings because, of course, we know that experience. Sometimes when you're a child, you're so frustrated with your parents. They don't get anything. They don't understand anything. And then when you get some perspective as you're older, and especially as you go and make your way into the world, you realize, in fact, they probably knew a lot more than you gave them credit for. One of the things that I, I often think about when I think about that quote, of course, is my own experience with children, how it is to have little children, and just like it was for myself, they don't understand why they have to go to bed at bedtime, why they have to brush their teeth, why they have to eat broccoli and not have candy as opposed to the other things that they would want to have. And of course, as a teenager, I can remember very vividly myself often wondering whether my parents really understand me and whether they really love me. Why? Because you can't go to this party you want to go to. You have to be home at a certain amount of time. You can't have the car right now. And there's other things that they simply said no to or forced me to do that at the time seemed like things that were completely unreasonable. And yet as you grow older, you begin to realize that your parents, and I had good parents, and so I have the privilege of looking back and seeing that. I recognize not everybody does. But as I looked uh, back towards my parents as I get older and become a parent myself, I realized that where I was looking for evidence of their love was often in the wrong place. Where I looked for evidence of their love and their understanding and care for me was asking myself, are they helping me do what I want? And I realized that the evidence of their love and their understanding now was where they helped me do what I need. And there's a big difference that is not always clear to people when they're teenagers. And I also think it's something that's not always clear to people when they follow Christ. I mention this because today I believe that this is an example that we are being shown in John the Baptist, a man who is faithful, a man who is called by God clearly, and a man that Jesus praises to the heavens, and yet even a man like this, whose faith is great and profound, suffers a time of doubt and fear that we see here in Matthew chapter 11, that I believe is sparked because he confuses where God is at work. He believes God is going to do a certain thing and a certain set of parameters, and he believes God is not at work in Jesus because he doesn't see it. And he ignores the fact that God is in fact thoroughly at work in Jesus, just not in the place John the Baptist was expecting. I want to talk to you about this doubt that goes through John the Baptist's mind, and also how it is that it challenges us not to be like this, that when times we don't see God at work, that maybe what God is challenging us is to say, maybe I'm at work at a different place that you're not really looking. So first off, what do I mean by John the Baptist being disillusioned? And why do I mean that he's looking for God in the wrong place? Well, as always, it's really helpful to give some background, and it's always helpful to sort of look at who the John the Baptist is and, and what his, his, his ministry is like in order to understand what the passage is going on here in Matthew chapter 11. Those of you who have sat through many Advent services will have heard a little bit about John the Baptist's background. His father, Zechariah, is a priest, and he's serving in the temple, and he's a faithful man. His wife, Elizabeth, is faithful, but they're older, they're past childbearing years, and yet the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah and says to Zechariah, you are going to have a son. His name is John. He will be the one that you've been waiting for. He'll be like Elijah coming to prepare the way of the Lord and great things will happen through him. And sure enough, although Elizabeth is well on in years, 
Elizabeth bears this son and John the Baptist is born. And we're heard even from the beginning when, when Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, has been told uh, that um, she's going to bear Jesus and she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth and Elizabeth has still uh, John the Baptist, the baby in her womb. She says that John the Baptist leaped with joy, that baby inside of her womb, when the, the infant Jesus, the baby Jesus inside of Mary's womb, still very, very small, he recognized so full of the Spirit that this little baby inside this womb leaps for joy. And we find that John the Baptist, of course, has amazing courage, and he goes out in the desert, and he takes on the form that is very uh, sort of typical of, of the Old Testament prophet, and particularly of Elijah. We're told he goes into the desert, and while he's in the desert, he eats a, a diet of locusts and wild honey. He puts on this really rough robe and, and, and preaches fiery sermons. And, and, and speaks about being the precursor of, of the Messiah who is to come. And everybody thinks about this man as a holy and great man. And here's where it gets really interesting. When we look at Matthew's gospel and we start understanding why John the Baptist might be disillusioned a bit with Jesus, listen to the sorts of things that John the Baptist is saying. We're told uh, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, when John saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not resume to say to yourselves, You have Abraham as your ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worried to carry his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I'm sure last week Lisa delivered a barnstorming, Repent or burn sermon. So you already have heard this element, I'm sure, right from her lips, as you heard it last week. But in all honesty, of course, you listen to this and you think, this is a kind of guy who is willing to preach a message that will be probably quite unpopular. And in fact, the brood of vipers, he's talking to the religious establishment of Israel. You are misleading them. You are doing what is wrong. And he compares them to vipers, probably an allusion back to the Garden of Eden, where the snake the evil one tempts and makes humanity fall. You are doing the same thing, even though you're acting in God's name. We hear about how an axe is lying at the root of the trees. It's just, just aching to chop you right down. And then, of course, if that's not enough of an imagery, what is coming? The, the great grim reaper here, the Messiah, is going to come with his great winnowing fork and is going to sort out, and you're a piece of grain, and you're a piece of chaff, and woe to you if you're chaff because you're tossed right into the fire. John the Baptist is full of fire. And in fact, John the Baptist, in saying these sorts of things, he is, in many ways, being extremely faithful. If we heard a little bit earlier, if you're listening to our first reading from Isaiah chapter 35, there's no doubt that the Messiah is talked about as accompanying judgment. Listen to uh, chapter 35, verse 4 of Isaiah we heard earlier. Be strong, do not fear, here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. John the Baptist recognizes here that God has called him to preach an unpopular message of repentance. He has a baptism for repentance. It is clear that John the Baptist is holding on to something deeply important about what the Messiah's ministry is, is to recognize that there is a coming judgment. And that's unpalatable for us, of course. We live comfortable lives and we don't want to hear this, but it's not a coincidence, I think, that in Matthew chapter 3, it follows directly on the heels of Matthew chapter 2 at the end, 
where King Herod unleashes his soldiers to Bethlehem to slaughter all the little baby boys in the hopes of killing the Messiah. And we're told Jesus and his family escapes to Egypt. But this is the context in which John is preaching. Wickedness at the very top of Israel's leadership. When John comes to preaching, that same Herod the Great who wanted to kill Jesus is dead, but his son Herod Antipas is now the king. We know a little bit further that Herod Antipas has John the Baptist arrested, not because John is unfaithful or untrue, but because John courageously calls Herod out for his injustice and wickedness, and specifically because Herod commits adultery with his brother's wife. Terrible under any circumstances, but for a Jewish king who is meant to be an example to his people, it is a horrible betrayal. And John the Baptist is arrested and eventually has his head cut off because Herod is so angry at what John is doing. John is speaking to the religious establishment who is not doing their job. He's taking on religious leaders. He's taking on secular leaders. He is preaching this message of repentance because all around him, not only is he hearing the word of the Lord, the justice must reign, he is looking at the world and seeing the profound injustice all around. And he is preaching that repentance needs to happen because this injustice stinks to high heaven. So John the Baptist does this faithfully, and yet here is the interesting part. Do you notice what makes him doubt? We're not told John the Baptist starts doubting because he's sick of eating locusts, or because he's out there and people aren't coming and and filling the collection plate when he passes it at baptism. And we're not told that he is in prison and he starts to doubt because conditions are bad and he's wondering if he's going to be rescued. Here's what's really interesting. Look at Matthew chapter 11, which we just read. Why is it? What sparks John's doubt and makes him send his disciples to Jesus to ask if he's really the one that he's expecting? Verse 2 of chapter 11. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? John the Baptist, who's been preaching that the Messiah is coming, is troubled when he hears what Jesus is doing. And yet Jesus is doing amazing things. Listen to what Jesus says he's doing. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. Deaf hear. Dead raised. Poor have good news brought to them. That's pretty impressive. If it's not enough to see a blind man be able to see and a deaf man to be able to hear, Jesus raises a little girl from the dead a few chapters earlier in Matthew. I would say that that would be pretty good evidence that this is the Messiah. So what's wrong? I think what's wrong is not what Jesus is doing. It's what Jesus isn't doing. See, Jesus is doing things that are very much in uh, accordance with what Isaiah 35 says he's going to do. Isaiah 35, verse 5. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. These are all things the Messiah is going to do. You know what gets John angry? It's because again, and makes him doubt, I think it's because again and again he said, now, The axe is lying at the root of the trees. Right after me is someone coming, and believe me, he's going to bring his smiting stick, and you are all going to get a big smiting, and judgment will happen. That's reasonable. He wants justice to happen, but he wants it to happen under his terms, and he wants it to happen under his time frame. And Jesus makes John stumble in his doubt, not because he's not doing all the things the Messiah is supposed to do, but because He is deferring his judgment because of his great mercy and his desire to see tax collectors, sinners, and even wicked rulers like Herod come to repentance and be saved. 
What I think John has a real difficulty with is not that he's not seeing God at work. He is not seeing God at work in the way he wants God to be at work. And that makes him doubt and wonder whether this is the really one, the one who's coming. You know, for different motivations, I mean, John doubts, but he doesn't oppose Jesus, and he doesn't, of course, ever recant or become an apostate. But for similar, uh, or for different reasons, but at the same time, uh, or with different motivations, but for the same reasons, the Pharisees and Sadducees are rejecting Jesus. He is not doing what they expect the Messiah to do. When Jesus talks a little bit about what's going on, he uses these sort of strange uh, things when he's calling out uh, the, or the Pharisees and religious leaders. He says, um, what will we compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you, did not dance. We wailed, you did not mourn. We're playing a tune for you, Jesus, and you're not dancing to our tune. We're frustrated. We are wanting you to do certain things, and you're not doing them. Look at what he says about when John comes preaching the truth, people recognize he is a prophet from God. John came neither eating nor drinking, but they say he's a demon. What is it? This guy's a hard case. He's not letting up. He's not sort of letting our sins get washed under the carpet, but demands repentance. This guy is wicked, and we don't want to hear him. Jesus almost seems to do the opposite. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John's a hard case, but Jesus is a softy. He's clearly not the Messiah we're expecting, because what did we expect out of the Messiah? Not the one who comforts the poor, not the one who makes tax collectors repent, not the one who makes sinners long to become part of the kingdom of God and be reassured that God, like that prodigal, or the father does to the prodigal son, God is calling them. They want a Messiah who comes and pats on the back all the great religious figures who are doing good, who are doing the things that they think they're supposed to do, and smiting all of their enemies. And so they not only doubt Jesus, they actively oppose him and ultimately kill him. It's interesting in John's gospel, do you know when he says that they want to kill Jesus and they form a plan? It's when he raises Lazarus from the dead. They see God so mightily and indisputably at work and they say, I hate it. And they want to put a stop to it. And what does this all tell us? Of course, we're believers. We've come and Jesus says very encouraging things. John the Baptist is the greatest, but the least in the kingdom of God will be greater than he We're baptized, we follow Jesus. Jesus has said that we are his children, his followers. When he uh, is raised, before uh, he he is ascended, he says, I'm going to my father and your father. He teaches us to say, our father who art in heaven. We are members of God's kingdom. And he says we're great. But at the same time, Jesus also says, blessed are those who are not offended at me. And I think that even though we don't need to fear we'll be cast out, we have the same reasons for doubts that John the Baptist does. We have reasons for doubt because, frankly, many times we look around at this world or we look at our own lives and we say, Jesus is not doing what we think he was supposed to do. And for that reason, I wonder whether he really loves me. And I got to ask whether this passage is challenging us to say, well, maybe God actually is at work in Jesus in powerful ways. But instead of looking at where God is at work, you look at where you wish God was at work. And that's a big difference. Now, many of you, of course, will remember the excitement. I can think, as we look at the world around us, remember the excitement, it seems, just ages ago. When I graduated high school in 1990, it seemed like the world was on the verge of a breakthrough of freedom. I remember when I went to university, we read a book called The End of History by Francis Fukuyama, which is kind of dated now, but he was basically saying, look, communism lost. The only viable system out there is democracy, free market capitalism, and that's what it's going to be here on in. 
you learn different, right? What happened with 9-11? What happened, of course, now where the Russians that we're having this great, you know, detente with, and I cannot turn on the television or listen to the radio or get on my Twitter feed without us all being haunted by Vladimir Putin, right? The fact of the matter is, is that this world in so many ways seems insane. It just seems insane. And I think to myself, as we look, the Prince of Peace, we're, we're praying to you, we're calling for the peace of the nations, we're celebrating your birth. And then we look at this world and think, do you really know what you're doing, God? And of course, I can think I'm high-minded and I care all about the world, but isn't it more often that my doubts happen not because I don't see things happening in the world? So often my doubts happen because I don't see them happening here. Something's not going right in my job, my challenges in my family or in my marriage or my friendships or my pocketbook or whatever it is. Many times these are things we deeply, deeply want to see changed and they're not being changed in the way that we expect. And as Christians, of course, we recognize God's not playing to our tune. We, we know intellectually. But of course, deep down in our bones, we often have that very same kind of petulance and doubt and fear that teenagers have when their parents aren't doing what they want. And we don't have that perspective because we aren't mature in the faith in the way that we should be. In fact, I ran across um, a great quote the other day about some of the particular challenge there is for us. And she's an American author. Um, I've mentioned her before, Eve Tushnet, who wrote about the uh, the, the challenge of being hurt by the church. But this is what she says about the particular challenge in American culture, which I think is also true in Canadian culture. She says, For Christians in a self-improvement culture, for whom God's power always seems manifest when he does what we want or what our parents hope for, it is necessary to learn that God's power is often manifest in what he asks us to accept. He is greater than our desires, greater than what we desire, and not constrained by our wants or our cultural values. He has for us something better than what we could design for ourselves. That's what we're asked to accept when we come to follow Jesus. But the hardest thing I find in the midst of doubts is not to accept or not to believe that God has done great things in the past or done great things for others, but to believe that when God says yes or God says no and doesn't do the things that we want him to do, that he still has our interests at heart because he loves us and that he truly does want to do through us more than we can ask or imagine. Our challenge as we now uh, come to the close of Advent, as we're looking forward to the great joy of Christmas, is also to remember that, yes, there's also the gap we're looking towards Jesus' second coming. And until he comes again in glory, we know that this world and our lives and the individual things we see every day will not be perfect, and not just imperfect, but often deeply troubled and deeply broken. What we're asked to do is to believe that God is still at work, and at times of our doubt, to not just look at what God is not doing, but to ask, maybe it is that God needs to show me where he is at work in ways that I didn't expect, and to bring something greater than what I had actually hoped. Here's our challenge. The times of our doubt and the times of our fear, and sometimes even at the times where we actively feel like God does not love us, we are to call upon the name of the Lord and ask, God, show us where you are at work, and help us to recognize that this is, in fact, the best thing that could be done. Our challenge today, not to embrace Jesus as we wish he was, but to embrace Jesus as he is, and the belief that his good for us is assured, and that even when he doesn't do what we want when we want, he is doing what we need when we need it.